welcome to the Six Degrees of John Kill podcast. I'm your host, Barbara Fisher. This evening, I'm talking with Alexandra. We've spoken with her before, early on, fairly early on. She is a shamanic practitioner and an anthropologist. And tonight, we're going to talk about the similarities between alien abduction scenarios and... uh, experiencers, and shamanic initiation among shamanic practitioners. Hello. Hi, Barbara. It's good to see you again. You too. Thanks for having me back. No worries. Now, if anybody hears any, like, little dog chortles, it's because uh, Alexandra has a really cute dog who sometimes wants to add her, you know, feelings on the matter. So if it happens, it happens. Don't worry about it. <laughs> so the reason I brought this topic up with you is I I was uh I went underwent shamanic training with one of your same uh teachers and so we have that in common and you know alien abduction is something that I of course know about but for a long time, I just kind of went, eh, it's over there. I'm not going to look at it. You know, so, I mean, I read Whitley Strieber's book, Communion, and the second book, Transformation, and a couple of his other books. I did read uh, some of Bud Hopkins' books, but I was I was very distraught when I read the transcripts of some of his, some of his work because he was asking under hypnosis, which he was an artist so probably shouldn't have been hypnotizing anybody um but but under hypnosis he was asking leading questions the same exact leading questions that i was taught as a journalist to kind of ask and sort of manipulate a a cagey source into saying what you knew they knew but they didn't want to say so i was like you're basically giving them information and they're spouting it back at you. That's not, that's not, no. So, so for the longest time, I pretty much, you know, oh, that's the X-Files thing. I'm not going to, you know, bother about it. I didn't read much about it. I didn't pay attention to John Mack. Um, uh, mostly, I just didn't read about it. And fairly recently, within the past year, a friend suggested he's like you know you really should read some of the the more interesting stuff he said you know because i agree with you on bud hopkins and and david jacobs he's like they're they're, no he was like but there's there's some cases that are really really unique and really strange and he said and i think with your with your experience with shamanic work it's going to sound familiar and so that's what I did. And then I started seeing things going, oh, 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 okay. So when you, when you talk about shamanic initiation or shamanic journeying, can you explain kind of what that entails to the listeners? <laughs> um, well, it's a big question. 
Um, sometimes I just tell people when they ask me what it's like, I'm like, have you seen the movie Spirited Away? Because it's a lot like that. <laughs> um, um, so let me see. What? Um, would you like me to um, approach it from the point of view of my personal experience or sort of the anthropological literature on shamanic initiation and the process? Um, go ahead and start with your experience and then, you know, we can kind of go, well, as Mercia Eliad says, <laughs> or as Michael Harner says, these are the steps, boo, 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 and then we can go. Right. Okay. So, um, you know, like you, I, I didn't pay a lot of attention to the UFO abduction stuff either. And I'm, I'm looking forward to learning more about it tonight because I do listen to all the right podcasts. I listen to this one and Strange Familiars and Where Did the Road Go? So, you know, I hear people's accounts there. But um, when I was a kid, I was really, really scared of UFOs and alien stuff. And so I just didn't want to go there. I was super into fairies and folklore and mythology and spirits and ghosts and all of that. But I was scared to death of aliens. So anyway, um, I come from a family that on my mom's side basically has done a lot of um, cunning, cunning craft type stuff. And so when I was a kid, it was always accepted that people in my family had the ability to, you know, see spirits or have, you know, quote unquote psychic abilities or something. So I was never poo-pooed for any of that. But uh, my mom didn't want me to go there because over time, every generation, it had sort of gotten more and more something that you keep quiet about. And because I also was a major nerd, my mom was like, uh, follow the academic path because that is a safe route. And um, I did, and I went all the way through to the PhD, and um, I never had any sort of a plan B. And um, when I got um, well into my graduate school period, I started to get really depressed. And when I, what started to bring me out of that depression was when I, when it occurred to me that the things that I had started to think about as like flaws in myself, such as being very sensitive and open to things, and you know, that actually these could be strengths just in a different context. And I started to mm -hmm. consider that although I really love the academic work and I love our anthropology and archaeology and I'm really passionate about that, but I started to think maybe I need to find some outlet for this other side of me because it wasn't allowed to come out and play within academia. And so then I, well, just as I was about to finish up, my mom got really sick. And so I hurried up and finished my um, dissertation defense and finished writing the dissertation. And I 
moved back to California where my mom was living to take care of her. And at the time I thought, you know, it looked like she might have, you know, weeks or months to live or something. She was in intensive care at the beginning. But fortunately, she ended up living for another four years. And I was her caregiver during that time. And I know this sounds like I'm not addressing the question, but it, but I, it, I am. <laughs> you are. You'll get there. <laughs> um, being a caregiver is incredibly stressful. And it was like 24 7, 365. And um, there was this constant, like, is today going to be the day that she dies kind of thing? And my mom were very, and I were very close. So, you know, um, I was really, I'm so grateful to have had that time. But it made me lose a bunch of hair, honestly. <laughs> I mean, it was very stressful. So I started meditating to try and cope with the stress. And when I was meditating, I started having these spontaneous, um, I guess you could call them sort of visions, but they weren't with my physical eyes. They were with like my mind's eye, but they were not something that I deliberately called up. Like, when we talk about daydreaming, you know, that's we usually imagine something where somebody is fantasizing or they're deliberately imagining something. And this was more like a dream in that it came spontaneously, but I still had my waking consciousness. So it was a lot like a very lucid dream. And the stuff that I was seeing was really weird. And little by little, I started to, the these, creatures and beings that would appear, and sometimes they would also show up in my dream, um, like my sleeping dream. Um, they'd say things to me, and um, they would usually turn out to be very wise in the long run. And um, they didn't start out by, you know, demanding anything. Oftentimes it would just they would just sort of show up and leave me wondering what the heck was that. Um, I actually had a friend when I was in grad school. I mean we're still friends, but when we were in grad school together, she did a workshop on shamanic journeys, and um, her area of focus is um, Anglo-Saxon England and. So she, for her, this, you know, related to her research and um, that she was doing. And so she told me about the experience and she kind of, you know, she just holds space for it, kind of like, well, that was really interesting. I don't know what to make of it, but that was fun and cool. And I couldn't do it with her because I had to teach uh, at the time they were doing it. Well, anyway, my research was on, my dissertation research was on mirrors uh, in basically all across temperate Eurasia, so from Britain to Japan, and um, in late prehistory, pretty much. And so if you've read any of the ethnographic accounts, or like you were saying, Eliade, if you've read any of those uh, works on shamanism, you will have read about how uh, Central Asian and Siberian shamans often have mirrors as tools and as part of their regalia. So as I was doing this research, that I, I was also doing research into shamanism, um, you know, related specifically to the mirrors. Well, so when these spontaneous things started happening, there was a part of my mind that was like, 
this looks a lot like, you know, some of those accounts that I've read where, you know, people start getting a call from spirits, but that can't be happening to me. I mean, not a little old machine, right? Yeah. <laughs> and so um, I kept up with it. Even after my mom passed away, I was still meditating. And I didn't, I didn't try to discourage these things or anything because um, I was curious about them. And I, at one point, I had a classic shamanic journey happen during one of these. So I um, saw this hole in the ground at the foot of a tree. And I knew I was supposed to go into that hole, but it was dark and scary. And I said, I just spontaneously said, Who's, who will guide me down this hole? And this guide appeared and said, I will. And we go down the hole, and then it was full of all kinds of just really weird stuff. And um, I was like, oh, so that's what that's like. And again, you know, this thing of like going <laughs> through the hole into the earth that takes you down into the lower world, that is just a classic textbook kind of experience. Mm -hmm. And then meanwhile, I started having um, spontaneous dreams and appearances of a uh, a, a person who could shapeshift, but basically appeared like a hag, kind of, you know, your classic fairy tale hag. Um, and she would um, tell me things that, you know, turned out to be true. And she wouldn't tell me who she was for years. Um, she made me work for that. And, um, then at the same time i started getting sick and it was you know your basic chronic illness type thing um you know aches pains trouble sleeping exhaustion just really bad chronic fatigue went to the doctor nobody could diagnose it mostly they weren't even really interested in trying honestly there was a lot of just kind of like shrug well you know everybody's tired like yeah everybody's tired but most people don't climb one flight of stairs and then have to lie down for a while you know yeah. um especially yeah. when they're in their 30s you know and um so at some point again there's this part of my mind that's going you know this sounds a lot like that whole thing where you get sick you get the call from the spirits and then you get sick and nobody can fix it and hmm what do you think about that? I'm like, I don't know, but that can't be happening to me. And um, just when I finally was sort of coming around to like, there, this is way too much coincidence to just be, I think this actually is happening to me. My cousin said to me, hey, I'm going to take this workshop, this like shamanic workshop. Do you want to do this with me? And I was like, yeah, I think I better. And so that was how I connected with the teacher that we have in common. And since then, I've done the full apprenticeship and completed that. Um, so it was just kind of funny because you know, if I didn't have that anthropological background, I probably wouldn't have known where to file this information. 
And so when this happens to people who don't have that background, uh, I can imagine it being even more traumatic. Um, I mean, getting chronically ill is traumatic to begin with, but um, I, I, I feel I was very lucky because I had a way of contextualizing. Um, and I, I, I also, I did my grad work in uh, Minnesota and there's a large Hmong community in the Twin Cities and they still have practicing shamanic traditions, continuous traditions. And, um, you know, I had friends who they're, you know, they would have to excuse their students from exams because it would be like, oh, I, you know, my brother's going through his shamanic issues or illness and so the family has to be there. Um, so that was like a thing that happened. Um, so I, I was aware that this, you know, it's still a, a real thing that is still happening to people all over the world all the time. No, it does. It makes it makes perfect sense. And uh, one of the one of the ways I've looked at the commonalities of shamanic practice or initiation and spontaneous UFO abduction um, experiences. Because of course, these are processes. It's not just a one and done usually. It's a continual communication with a non-human intelligence. Uh, one of the things that I think particularly in the Western world is most of us don't have a living shaman living shamanic tradition to point to look at understand see i mean we don't even have movies about it so much in the west i mean there's a few but mostly yeah. no there, there really isn't you have bits and pieces uh, you have some folklore how many people actually study that? Not very many. Um, but I feel almost like, you know, we did our best to get rid of those practices because they were quote unquote primitive and we were all scientific and materialist and we're way too logical. So we don't need that. We're all, you know, the Christian church tells you this, this, and this is true. There it is. Boom, cut off, done. Um, and to the point where now, you know, atheism is, is more Western than, you know, church anymore. So we kind of just shut off our spirits and, you know, if you have traditions with communication with spirits and then you cut it off, that doesn't mean the spirits are going to go away. <laughs> and if you, even if you don't believe in them, they believe in you, they're not going to go away. Yes. Yes. It's like, I don't believe in Bigfoot. Well, Bigfoot believes in you, buddy. And he just walked in front of your car. It's like, you know, I, what do you say when you have just, you know, a normal person suddenly wake up and there's these little guys with you know big heads and big eyes and a bright light what do you what do you do there's no context for that 
Um, and that, that's, that's where, when I really started looking at some of the more unusual experiences, I could find the threads that went with my shamanic experience and other people's shamanic experiences and go, oh, wait a minute, wait a minute, something is happening here. Uh, so one of the things that I just saw that was really interesting is there's a folklorist called Thomas Bullard. He does great work um, and he's done a lot of comparative uh, folklore with UFOs and UFO abduction. Um, essentially, he thinks of it as an emergent folklore that describes something that's older than what we think it is. And he says that UFO experiences have these, uh, these stages in common, generally, not all the time, but there's the stage of, of being in captive, captivated, or captured, you know, so you're abducted. Um, there's an examination, and there's physical procedures. Um, that's often where you get the implants, or there's surgeries that are done, or psychic surgery, or sexual contact of some sort. Then there's a conference where they talk with you. And this isn't all happening in the same instance. It's sort of a, it's steps. Uh, then they give you a tour of their quote-unquote ship, um, which sometimes is overtly made to be like a ship, but in other cases, there's a, a really famous case with Strieber near the end of his first book where he talks about going into this, into the craft, and it was dark, and it was dank, and it was damp, and it smelled funny, and it smelled yeah. kind of like yeah. dirt. <laughs> And I was like, dude, <laughs> dude, that's the underworld, dude. <laughs> you know? um, but yeah, so you get a tour and sometimes it's not really a ship. It's just some chamber. Uh, and then you have otherworldly journeys where you fly on the ship, quote unquote, or you go through these long hallways and you come to these lands that are all these different colors and, and I'm like oh that's that's celestial stuff sometimes there's castles made of crystal and I'm like oh yeah I've heard about that too and then there's usually a message you have a job you you can be a healer if you listen to what we say you can help other people and people come back changed and a lot of people become vegetarians or vegans. A lot of people become activists for human rights or animal rights or both. Uh, some people come back pacifists. And most of them come back with some kind of ecological awareness that they didn't have before. And I'm sitting here going, well, that's Mother Earth talking to you right there. I, I don't know what else to say. <laughs> and so when I started looking at it that way, I remembered what Michael Harner said, you know, you have your selection where the spirits come and say, oh, hey, we'd, we'd, like they did with you, you know, hey, we're over here. Hey, come here, talk to me. Hi, I'm looking at you. So you have the selection, then you have an initiation, which sometimes involves dismemberment. 
uh, or some kind of, you know, opening up of the head or the, the chest and, and putting things inside like sacred stones. So that's, you know, that's just like those UFO implants. Uh, sometimes they exchange organs with you. So the spirit will take something out of himself and put into you. Uh, and then you have uh, magical flights. You, you go into the upper world realms and talk to other spirits. And you talk with higher entities and you come back with a job. Yep. And Often you don't have a, a right of refusal. No, you do not. And it's the same way with, with so many times when people have said to the the quote-unquote aliens the grays or whatever you have no right to do this to me they say we have every right to do this to you yeah you know i actually um asked my spirit teachers about this and now this is just my personal notes i'm not saying that you know this applies for everybody out there but they said i was like why do you wreck our lives when we don't accept the call and they said well we only kind of sort of partly wreck their lives. They said, um, we call you in multiple lifetimes. If, you, if you're being called in this lifetime, you've probably been called in another lifetime. And we will keep calling you until you accept. And then once you accept, we'll keep calling you still. But like, we'll keep <laughs> calling you. But they said, the thing is, if you accepted the call in a past life, guess what? You still are committed in our mm -hmm. view. And they said, the thing is, part of the reason your life gets so wrecked is that once you stepped into that agreement, you can't go back to living a normal life. And the, the metaphor that they gave me was that as, the, as a drum is to a shaman, right? Because frequently we use drums to as a sonic driver to inner trance, right? They said, as the drum is to you, you are to us. And they said, you are basically hollowed out and you're given a very loud voice so that you can transmit from us to other people. And we will beat you like a drum. <laughs> until, if you do not do what we right. say. <laughs> so that, you know, we will beat you so that that voice, you know, comes out. And it's, they, from their point of view, as from what they tell me, the, the need is so urgent that they don't have time to F around and find out. And, um, but it's not always that they're just being jerks about it. It's just that one, and I know this from my own personal experience, because I, at one point after I had accepted this and everything, I, I had a little um, uh, tip with one of my spirit teachers, and I was like, screw you guys, I'm going home. And they were like, <laughs> ha, 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 you can't, <laughs> you can't go home. Like, this is home now. And uh, I very quickly realized they were right, because you can't, you know, once you are, um, doing spirit work, um, you can't just go back to like working your office job. I mean, it's not to say that you can't function or anything. You, you can, but it's like, you know, you're going to be doing stuff that especially in modern Western society is regarded as really, really weird. And if you try and hide that or, to, in order to fit in or you try to somehow, you know, deny it, it just, and that's why I got so incredibly depressed in grad school. And I mean, I was, we're talking suicidal ideation. It was a really deep depression because 
you know, at my job, I'm like seeing spirits out of the corners of my eyes and stuff. And yet I'm in this world where I don't dare admit to that because I will lose all my credibility. Mm -hmm. um, and it's funny, I, I listened to the Weird Studies podcast and one of the hosts was saying that it's, you know, in some ways so silly that in academia, a lot of times the what is what is seen to give you the credibility to talk on a subject is the fact that you've never experienced it, which is so backwards. But it's absolutely mm -hmm. true. It's absolutely true, especially if you're in a science or science adjacent kind of field. Yeah. And so that yeah. you know that was why, um, in like internally, psychologically, everything was falling apart for me. And um, I think possibly part of the reason why in in the West, in modern times, why the initiation often seems to go along with your life just falling apart is because in traditional societies that had a continuous shamanic tradition, there were all of these uh, protocols in place to train people and guide them through the initiation. There were rituals and ceremonies and all this kind of stuff. We don't have that. And so a lot of the initiation plays out both on the spirit level, but it also like it manifests in your in your life. Yeah. So so you don't just do an underworld, you know, journey in the it's not just like your spirit journeys to the underworld, but like in, in metaphorical senses sometimes, or even literally, because sometimes people have near-death experiences and stuff, but um, the time that I was caring for my mom was very much a kind of a death experience because, as I said, when I mentioned that I had no plan B, what I was going to, what I'm bringing that back to is that um, by caring for my mom, I had to leave my academic career. There was no way I could go back into it because I couldn't participate in the stuff that you need to do to become a professional. I couldn't go to conferences. I couldn't publish papers. I couldn't do research. Um, I couldn't even whip my dissertation into shape to publish it, which is standard practice. It is freely accessible, but it's not like formally published. And um, that was a huge grief for me. And not just because I really love archaeology and but because my whole identity was in that. You know, I was an academic. Yeah. I was like a fourth generation academic on my dad's side, and that was just what I was going to do. And um, I uh, had to completely, like, die to myself, basically. And there was also this experience of being of, like, helplessness, where it's kind of like, uh, there's nothing I can do to really change my situation. This is what it is. I mean, I guess technically I could have just told my mom, see ya. Um, but I wasn't going to do that. That wouldn't be right. And, um, um, and, you know, I loved her very much. So, so there was this sort of this, I, I really perceive, and it's not the only initiation I've been through because really I feel like it's just kind of one after another. Thing, but, um, Mm -hmm. There's like the first thing that happens is this experience of kind of the old you dies, and then you are mm -hmm. in this like kind of burial phase and like decomposition where the old you is dead, but the new you hasn't come into being yet, and you feel 
really disoriented and very just like, what is happening? Who even am I? What does any of this mean? And there's no point in starting any new projects. There's no point in um, trying to reinvent yourself at this point because you you can surrender to the helplessness and just go with the flow, which makes it easier somewhat. Uh, but it's going to happen regardless. And then there's a sort of a rebirth, and that's when you come into your new phase of life, and you can sort of resume being an active agent in your life. Yeah. 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 One of the one of the things that I think is very interesting when we talk about initiatory experiences. And, and one of the one of the things people have said to me is like, well, it's not exactly one to one. And, you know, what what are these these UFO initiates supposed to be doing? What is their job? And I'm like, well, they tell you what their job is. You know, there's there's some people like Ted Rice who became a psychic and he's he was you know, well, he is he's still alive. He's very, very accurate with his with his readings and as he went back through his life and looked at it uh through a different lens he realized he had been essentially educated to do that from the beginning and he never really had a, a normal life you know his started in childhood so he was he was essentially put together and and there's some uh, initiative uh, activities that happen. He's he's in a book called Masquerade of Angels, and he wrote it with Dr. Carla Turner, and she did uh, research into abduction scenarios and abduction uh, experiences because she had the experiences herself, and her whole family did. And so one of these experiences, he finally, near the end of the book, figures it out. And he said, you know, I was a child and I watched them pull a body out that looked exactly like me. Oh, whoa. And then they, they gave me this drink and said, drink this. And I'm like, oh, here we go. Here we go. Don't drink stuff in fairy. Don't do that. You know? <laughs> And he did because he was given really no choice, much like you were given no choice. Um, and there's no right of refusal, as you say. Um, so he drank it and he died. He became paralyzed. He fell down. And then he said he was floating above his body and he watched as they dismembered his body. And then they used this black box to pull his soul out and put in the box. And then later on, it was taken from the box and put into the new body. As soon as I read this, I'm like, oh, it's just like when Bear takes you apart and puts you back together again with extra stuff, right? <laughs> you know? It's just a, a more a more sort of technological-looking version of that. Right. And, you know, he was like, I, I, I came back and I was really sick when I, when I, you know, came out of that dream or whatever it was, and I was really sick for like, you know, five, six months. 
And my, my family, you know, was worried about me. I was always having fevers and they couldn't figure it out. And I'm like, uh-huh, yeah, okay. The shamanic sickness, yes, yes, this happens. And, but his story is so, it's so not your typical UFO abduction story. And yet there are so many parallels with the shamanic story. You know, these, these stories just go together really interestingly. And one thing that really got me is he has an experience with reptoid beings, um, you know, the, the bipedal alligator headed nasty people. And they do nasty things. They're terrible. All I could think of was the part in one of Michael Harner's books where he said, you know, I went and into the underworld and I met up with these terrible creatures. They had, you know, these big alligator teeth and the big heads and they're following me around and they're all like, you're terrible. We own you. We'll eat your soul. You know, and all of these awful things. He said, so when I came back, I, I told the shaman, I'm like, the, these guys, <laughs> my, it's my favorite response. He just laughed and said, oh, them. It's just them. They do that. Don't listen to them. They want you to listen to them and, and feel bad and, and do the wrong thing. They're just trying to make you do the wrong thing. Ignore them. They're just those guys. And all I was like, when I read that book, I was like, oh, Ted, man, <laughs> it was those guys. <laughs> yeah, it was definitely those so, guys. Yeah. Yeah, I've had a few brief run-ins with those guys. They didn't appear with the reptilian form to me, but... Uh, same, uh, same vibe. Yeah. You belong to us. We created you. Bleh. <laughs> they're so full of it. Yeah, they're mean. And, but at the same time, if, if you run into them over and over and, and you have support from your spiritual allies, you kind of go, oh yeah, there you are again. That's nice. Yeah. Um, go away. It's, it. Yeah. And uh, there's another there's another uh, story. It's from a documentary called Witness of Another World. If you ever get a chance, I think it's free in a couple places on the Internet. And it's about the UFO experience of a young boy in Argentina. He was from a gaucho family um, on his dad's side. On his mom's side, he was related to some of the the indigenous people who were um, who who had shamanic practices going back forever. And uh, he, as a boy, had been told by his father, "Hey, go get the horses." And so he goes out with his horse to get the other horses, and he gets lost in a fog. And as he's going through the fog, he comes up to a uh, hut, a weird hut, and it was on stilts, and there was weird lights, and he looked up, and there was a ladder to get in there, and he saw his dead grandfather in there, along with some other beings, and he tied his horse to, like, one of the struts or the legs and went in, and, they, you know, he talked with his grandfather and then he came out, got on his horse, who was 
really freaking out and and not happy. And he went back without the horses and his dad was mad at him and, you know, took a belt to him and yelled at him. And he was like, but I saw this thing and there were lights and it, I don't know what happened. And my horse is, has freaked out. His horse died like a few days later. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so there was something not good happening. And it just, the whole experience really just shut this kid down. And Dr. Jacques Vallée was one of the first Westerners to talk with him about this. This was back in the 70s. And he had his uh, wife, Janine, with him, who was a child psychologist. And so he was really happy he had brought her because she could help this, this child. And, and they spoke with him. And what ended up happening over, you know, a period of like 30 or 40 years, he just ended up becoming a recluse. He had a farm. The only person he really saw was his mother because she lived with him and he had his animals and that's who he interacted with. That whole like UFO thing just, it, it, it just destroyed him essentially personally. Well, interestingly, a uh, documentarian found out about him and was like, you know, let's see what happens if I bring Dr. Valet back. Let's see what happens if we, you know, if we talk to people on his mom's side of the family. And what ends up happening is Dr. Valet remembers him, of course, and he remembers Dr. Valet. They talk. He will not talk about the exact instance. He just kind of talks around it because he's still upset about it. And the his mother's people said, bring him, bring him to, to his ancestral village, bring him here. And they do, and they initiate him. And he can talk again. Because that's what they said. They were like, this is what we do. That was a spirit, and it was coming for you. And that's why you haven't been able to do anything right, because you didn't understand the call, and you weren't able to talk with your ancestors the way we do. And so they taught him and they initiated him and it essentially healed him. So yeah, all those spoilers, people, there's so many spoilers, but it's been out for a while. So I figure you've seen it, but it, it, it's very much a, if you didn't think of it as, as UFO related at all, if you didn't know anything about it, you would see it as a shamanic story. Absolutely. Or even, um, it's very similar to a lot of the fairy folklore, too. Uh, you know, they get abducted by the fairies, they disappear, they come yep. back, and they're fairy doctors now, and they heal people. Or, um, like, uh, Betsy Dunlop, who was um, one of the women in England, or Scotland, and she ended up getting prosecuted for witchcraft, which is why we have a record of what happened to her. But she was just walking along one day feeling bad because life was not going well when a spirit comes to her. Now, the spirit said that, that uh, he was actually a deceased human, but he lived in the fairy realm. And basically, the queen of fairy had sent him to be her familiar and like help her out with stuff. And she was basically like, oh, wait, I don't want any part of this. My life's not <laughs> a lot on my plate right now. And he's like, yeah, well, you don't get to say no, though. No. So... Um, so, 
you know, I mean, yeah, you know Josh Cutchen, so like you already know that there are these parallels. Um, but it just it blows my mind that um, mm-hmm. how similar they are, uh, and that they happen in such a similar way, even within this context of society that, meaning the modern West, you know, that doesn't yeah. allow for these things to be real. Yeah. Yeah, one of my favorite, you know, fairy things that happened in the 20th century was supposedly not even a fairy thing. It was Joe Simonton, the chicken farmer, minding his own business when he comes upon a landed quote unquote UFO and little little, little Italian looking guys were cooking pancakes and they asked for water and he gave it to him. And and I'm sitting here going, how many stories are there of fairies coming up to the door asking for water or grain or whatever? And then they gave the dude some pancakes and flew away. Well, Joe didn't ask for that, for one thing. And what is he supposed no. to do with that? Um, but it wasn't. No, they yeah, were they crappy, and they had no salt, which, again, fairies <laughs> don't like salt. So, yeah. Yeah. And and that's another thing about UFO occupants. They're always trying to get you to drink something or eat something. And I'm, I'm always kind of like, I don't know about that. Maybe you shouldn't. I don't think so. Uh, but, yeah, that's that's one of the, the things that, you know, maybe the fairy lore was our last in the, you know, Anglo-Saxon West and Celtic West that we had that was shamanically involved. And when we've, you know, finally destroyed that and turned it into nursery tales and ignored it for the most part, that's when we started getting, I don't know, UFOs and aliens and and all that they get framed in this materialist sort of way Mm -hmm. where they look technological instead of looking numinous or whatever because there's no new the numinous isn't allowed to be real so they just put on a new skin and show up in a way that's like oh hi Some of my favorite ones also are from the 50s, similar to Simonton. There's a couple of uh, Italian stories where women are either, you know, wandering around in the mountains and picking flowers. And, you know, the woman takes her stockings and shoes off so she can wade in in the creek. And and she's minding her own business walking around. And there's this egg-shaped vehicle, you know, sitting on three legs and these little guys wearing space helmets and capes because that's a thing whatever um run up and they you know they steal her flowers and they yank her stockings off out of her hand and run off you know i I was like there's another italian lady who's putting her wash on the line and they stole stockings and ran off and then they they were in the same kind of like egg shaped and they had these you know these helmets and i was like that's the early when they were like oh we're space people and they just weren't really good at it you know (laughs) they hadn't they hadn't figured out what space people do yet. Right. No. They hadn't seen no. Star Trek, so. They hadn't watched enough of the, you know, 1950s movies. They're supposed to have tentacles and stuff. They didn't. Yeah. 
Or maybe they just thought they were icky. I don't know. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Yeah. So when you, when you look at uh, all of these stories, I mean, I like to look at them as stories in a way and then analyze the motifs that you see. So I'm kind of a Thomas Bullard person. I like to, you know, dig in there and realize that these, these tales have been with us for a very long time. And the spirits have been calling people for a very long time. And in a lot of ways, I feel as if there, there has to be some kind of way to bridge the gap between modern shamanic practitioners in a Western model and UFO abduction and kind of at least get an exchange of information. You know, I, I think that would help. Yeah. We're really, those of us who were brought up within a modern Western cultural background, and that's a lot of people, including even people who are actually indigenous, but, you know, their lands have been colonized by, you know, this or that empire. And so, um, like it or not, they were, you know, forcibly uh, brought up within modern Western modernity. And... um, all of those culturally specific trainings and lore and rituals of initiation and all this, you know, that that smooths the process of initiation. And without that, it's all on the spirits to do mm-hmm. all of that for us. They do most of the training, they do the initiation, and it's it makes it just a lot more difficult because you have to, you know, it's like you have Mm -hmm. to reinvent almost almost every time when you're talking about individuals, it, it, that's gotta be tiresome. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And it's very, um, psychologically difficult for the person who's going through it because, um, you'll notice if you, listening to people's accounts of their unexplained experiences, you know, whether it's Bigfoot or ghosts or UFOs or what have you, there's this performance that you'll hear people go through over and over and over again, which is, well, I'm a skeptic, but, or I used to be a skeptic, but. And so the the little ritual performance that you do is where you say that you didn't believe in this kind of stuff until the preponderance of your experience got to be so big that you simply couldn't deny it anymore. Um, And so you had to concede that there's something going on here. And we have to go through that because it's, it's like, you don't, you have no credibility within uh, sort of Western, what I think of as like metaculture, you know, you have no credibility if you just straight up say, oh yeah, you know, I've been seeing spirits since I was a little kid, never had any doubt about it. Oh yeah, I know that. Um, (laughs) Yeah, yeah, I do too. Um, And, but even so, I still put myself through that by doing that whole, well, this can't be happening to me. I mean, I never poo-pooed that this happens to people in like indigenous Mm -hmm. cultures. That wouldn't, you know, I totally take it for granted that 
what they're describing is what they're experiencing. But surely that couldn't be happening to me. Um, and so, you know, even I had to go through this thing, but it's such a waste of time. It's such a waste of time. And it's so silly when you look at it from a, a bigger perspective in that when you look at cultures globally and through time, this, this tiny little phenomenon of the past few hundred years in this tiny little corner of what claims to be a continent but is really more just like a weird bumpy peninsula that sticks off the end of Asia, i.e. Europe. Um, and really, it wasn't even everybody there. It was like the landowning, educated, uh, white, male, you know, elite, essentially, who decided to adopt this absolutely crazy perspective that <laughs> the stuff that makes up such a huge percentage of human experience everywhere and every when is not real. And I mean, to say that that's say that that's racist is like an understatement mm -hmm. first of all um but it also just when you look at it from that perspective it's like i mean i'm not one to say that just because a lot of people believe something that makes it true but there's no denying that this is a normal and natural part of human experience on the global scale and for this one tiny little corner of people in this very 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 short period of time to think that somehow they have a more accurate uh, assessment of what constitutes reality is delusional. It is delusional. It is like a societal mental illness. And we're all trying to basically wake up out of that societal psychotic break um, with no help, with no help, societally speaking. Mm -hmm. Yeah. One of the things that I find, I mean, I mean, it's even comedians see it. Um, Eddie Azard, you know, he, he talked about how yeah. Europe made these huge empires by going into other people's countries and smacking a flag in it and going, it's ours now. And you know, they're like, we live here. And it's like, it doesn't matter. Do you have a flag? No, no That's flag, no nation. Flag. It's part of the British Empire. You know, it's like. That is so it, it, just psychotic, really. I'm just going to march into a country full of people. And because I'm European, I'm going to take it over. And that's, yeah. that's just how it worked. And then all of the beliefs that came with the colonization were better than the beliefs that were already there. And so they tried to beat those beliefs out of people. And I, For their own. Uh, yeah, yeah, that, that also, it, uh, yeah. it's one of those, I guess it just comes with the whole idea that you can just walk into somebody's living space and say, it's yours now, I guess. I, <laughs> So that everything is yours now. Your thoughts are mine now. Here, have my thoughts. There you go. They're better than your thoughts. You know, have have my philosophy. It's better than yours. Wow. <laughs> Just it. Yeah, it's really crazy. Um, 
And it's amazing that there are still so many indigenous people that still keep trying to help us. I know. Right. And I, you know, to some extent, I think that there are just genuinely good people. And to some extent, I think they're just like, my God, you guys are so dangerous. Like, we have to snap you out of this for the sake of everybody because you are just ruining it for everyone. Yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, which is absolutely true. And there's still spirits keep trying to help us, too. Mm-hmm. Um, and but, you know, we're, we're so busy pretending that they don't exist that we don't listen to them. So, um, yeah, uh, it's 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 like a mental illness and a spiritual one at the same time. And we are, um, Tyson Yunkaporta calls it a civilizational curse um, that we are basically living under. And we're all haunted because we, in the whole process of denying that anything that's not physical exists, we have also neglected, you know, generations worth of ancestors and genocided a bunch of people as well. Oh, yeah, because, So there's yeah. lots of untended dead uh, around. And so... Is it any wonder that we have so many people going through mental health problems and just experiencing this existential despair? Yeah. Well, and it's also the issue that we didn't believe in psychology until recently either. True. You know, and and the way that we treated mentally ill people was, you know, I mean, 16th, 17th century, oh, just stick them in in a dungeon and chain them to the wall and... Let rich people pay to point fingers and laugh. Um, wow, that helps. That does a good job. Nice. Well done. Very therapeutic, yes. Uh, you know, it, it, if you look at the way that even today mentally ill people are treated, it's, it's shameful. And it's not like we haven't known better for a long time. So it's kind of, you know, when uh, when the Athens Lunatic Asylum was built, it was built to be humanitarian care. And it was built on a humanistic uh, basis. You know, it, it, all of it from the architecture, from the treatments, from the food, from... Uh, you know, having them work the farm so they they were doing something productive and and learning skills. All of this was meant to be compassionate care. And it lasted for about 10 years. And then it became overcrowded and awful and, you know. But so that was what? It, It was right after the Civil War. So it was the 1860s. So we knew better for a long time and it's just that that we would backslide and we come to uh capitalism i think as being part of the problem oh yeah because everything has to make money it is in the service of making money and continuing to make money and power and and while that's going on mind you you know after the the civil war we were expanding into the west and committing genocide on a large scale so you know if people wonder what evil spirits look like that's what it looks like that is what it looks like 
Mm -hmm. I, I mean, okay, it's my salty opinion, but yeah, it looks like capitalism. It looks like thinking you're entitled to just co commit mass murder because you would really like that patch of land and there's somebody inconvenient on it already. I mean. Yeah. It's, it's also doing things like killing the food supply on that patch of land that was keeping that patch of land good and alive because grazing cattle is not the same thing as, as bison. Um, and that's how you get the dust bowl and then you have the depression and then you have to have a world war to get out of that. So hey. now we've had a history lesson on top of everything else. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the solutions somehow always end up being even worse than the problem that they were supposed to solve. I know. Um, yeah. It's just, it's just ridiculous. And, and it just, it seems to, well, it serves a very small number of people is what it does. So one of the things that I was going to say, and there's also other, um, other commonalities that I didn't really talk about um, in UFO experiences. There's often animals being sighted in places that are unusual, like, you know, on a UFO, um, but also like outside of people's windows looking in and they usually have very large eyes um, because that's, that's the, the grays. And I, I was like, you know, most of the people who do alien abduction before they knew anything about shamanic practice were like, oh, well, these are screen memories. You know, you think you saw an owl, but you really saw a gray and that's what it was. Or you think you saw a deer, but it really was a gray because they got big eyes and da, 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 da. And I'm like, oh, but, you know, shamanic practice deer have always been, you know, deeply involved with humanity. Uh, owls have always been deeply symbolic in just about every culture, whether good or bad or both. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, rabbits the same way. These these and and of course in shamanic practice we have animal spirits or spirits that can be shaped like animals, but can also shape shift themselves. So of course you know I'm reading this this. You know, well, that's just a that's just a screen memory that they implanted in your head, and I'm like, oh, are you sure? I mean, maybe the animal was just involved. <laughs> yeah. I mean, th this is the thing about um, about animism, right? Um, mm -hmm. Is we are intricately enmeshed in this web of relationships with all the beings. And they, and as it's, you frequently will hear um, said about animism, it's like um, the world is full of persons, only some of whom are human. And yep. in fact, humans are a minority of the persons who are around. And mm -hmm. um, there are animal persons, there are spirit persons, there are plant persons. Sometimes there are geographical persons like rivers and mountains and so on. And um, what makes them persons is that they have a consciousness and, and an agency of their own. And so, you know, the shaman, you always hear it said, well, the shaman, you know, works for their community. And some people will say, well, you know, you can't call yourself a shaman because that's something that the community wow. has to designate you. 
and in a traditional culture that's true um but um it's a little bit more tricky here in the west because a large part of your community is denying that any of this exists um but what has been impressed upon me is that the community is also all these other beings yes and you work for them too because you know ideally what your your mission sort of is or, i mean at least this is how it was presented to me and maybe this is not true for everybody but um is that you are trying to create a dynamic equilibrium where everybody can flourish together and it doesn't mean that there's no death and there's no suffering or anything like that it, you know um, death is there's life and there's anti-life mm -hmm. and, and death is part of the dynamic equilibrium but what's not part of the dynamic equilibrium is for example killing all buffalo um killing all the people who live on land because you happen to want it um, that's anti-life and uh, yeah, so I have no problem with the idea because I, I see a lot a lot of the spirits that I deal with do appear as animals, and uh, I have no problem with the idea that they actually are animals. Um, I, instantly, my mind is like, "What even is an animal?" <laughs> you know, <laughs> I don't. Know. <laughs> um, but uh, but at the same time, you know, they do they can shape change. And so maybe that's just a skin that they choose because, you know, I really like animals and I am more trusting of animals than I would be of spirits presenting as human most of the time, probably. Mm -hmm. and yeah. I'm, yeah, I'm I'm a lot the, I'm a lot the same way. So it really yeah. seems actually like a lot of people who end up getting the, this call to practice as do you know, shamanic practitioner uh, as kids are very inclined to kind of wander off in the woods and talk to the animals and the plants and stuff. And interestingly, yeah. I have read that as well for indigenous cultures, it's not just kids in the West, but and so that's sometimes in, in indigenous cultures that have intact shamanic traditions, that is recognized as a sign that that kid is probably a potential candidate. It all depends on whether they actually get that call from the spirits which happens when they actually become right. adult, but, but they're kind of seen as like, well, that one's probably going to get that call. Yeah. 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 I, I, and yeah. How many of us were wandering around in the woods talking to the trees and the, you know, the, yeah, I, the animals and I hear that over and over again. It's like something that I have in common with so many people who get, attracted to a call to this path. Yeah. 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 It's, it's in fact, um, one of the, I mean, one of the things that I remember, even as a small child was I trusted cats and dogs more than I trusted most human people. You know, I could, and I also judged human people by how dogs and cats and other animals reacted to them. Absolutely. I still think that's a pretty good indicator. Oh, yeah. It, um, I mean, th that's to this day. But even as a really young kid, I could trust the sense of animals around a person. 
when I was really little, we lived in the country, and um, I, I'm originally from Northern California, and we lived in a rural area. It's kind of, I like to call it the part of California that nobody knows exists, because it's not, it's not the beach, it's not the Bay Area, it's not the mountains, and it's not the wine country, <laughs> like in between. <laughs> and, um, but it's really rural, and um, we had a little, you know, five-acre plot of and I would just kind of go around and like, I was really interested in trying to learn the names of plants and things, which is still something that I am really interested in. And, um, but as a kid, it was, it wasn't just like, I would like to know what the taxonomical binomial of this plant species is. It was like, I want to know who this person is. Right. Mm -hmm. And um, we had uh, dogs and my parents and, to be fair, this is really more my dad because he uh, he was kind of hands off. His, his feeling was that dogs are perfectly good babysitters and would keep me out of trouble. And they did. So he wasn't wrong. Uh, yeah. And so I would just like walk around with the dogs and, you know, hang out with the animals and and the plants and learn their names and all that kind of stuff. And I mean, that's pretty close to my idea of paradise. So yeah um that's a, that's a lot what i did at my grandparents house so yeah as long as i had the dogs with me too that if i had all three dogs i was fine nothing nothing bad would happen oh and they would tattle on me too if i went something <laughs> i wasn't supposed to so which i did anytime my dad wasn't paying close attention often <laughs> <laughs> Oops. <laughs> well, I suspect that I inherited my ADHD from him. So uh, there's a certain tendency to be inattentive. But interestingly, that seems to also be something that's fairly common among people who end up on this path. It's certainly not like a required qualification, but it's definitely not uncommon. Yeah. Yeah, I, I would think that some of those uh, different differently connected brains would be, you know, part of the whole gestalt of what we're talking about. People who experience UFO abduction and people who experience shamanic spirit calls, that sort of thing. Yeah. I, I figured that that all sorts of spectrums are involved. Yeah. Yeah. Because yeah. Absolutely. I remember this one time where my friend was just looking at me like are you crazy? Because I was say I was really surprised by how much traffic there was on East State Street um, on this one day, and she was like, "Well, it's like the Friday before Halloween or something like that, some holiday." And you know, everybody's out shopping, and I was like, "Really?" And she's like, "How do you not know this?" And I'm like, "Well, how do you not know what phase the moon is in?" I mean, I know that. <laughs> I know the <laughs> stuff. <laughs> you know. <laughs> No, I can't keep track of what day of the week it is. So, uh, yeah, yeah, that that tendency to be kind of uh, um, you tune out a lot of the stuff that you need to do or know in order to function within capitalist society, which is a challenge. But you are very sensitive to a lot of the kind of sparkles, you know that mm -hmm. that are what I think you know life is really all about. Right. Yeah. The important stuff. Exactly. 
there's another interesting thing that that I wanted to ask you about um, with well okay so John Keel back in the 60s noticed this he was one of the first people who really started noticing that UFO experiences UFO abductions were very similar to things like fairy abduction um, and that there were all of these commonalities between uh, psychic occurrences and UFO witnesses. Like, you know, he was one of the first people to say, well, you know, we can't, I mean, we've been staring at the UFOs and getting the descriptions of what they've done and we've watched them do their things, but that doesn't really tell us anything. Um, the only thing that we can actually learn from with UFOs is what the people who witnessed them or experienced them experienced during that time and then afterwards. And he said, if you ask any UFO experiencer about their past, there's weird things there. Grandma was a psychic. Um, let's see. So-and-so saw a ghost. Um, there's a poltergeist that came into the house right after mom and dad saw the UFO. Um, something started leaving the doors open and unlocked. Uh, the the uh, TV goes out at the same time every night, blah, blah, blah. And it just goes on and on and on. One of the things that he noticed and that he began to say in some of his writings was he believed that the only quote-unquote materially real part of a UFO experience was the light. Most of them start with a light in the sky that then seems to turn into a solid craft. And he said that there was something about the light that was communicating with the witnesses, the people who saw it, and that the, the rest of the experience was was somehow communicated either directly psychically or it was an imaginal kind of dimension where he called it paraphysical. So they could be physical sometimes, but they're not other times. One of the things that is interesting is I've never had an experience in shamanic terms with a strange light, like when I've been doing underworld journeys or anything like that on the other hand i can just walk you know down the street or whatever and see a weird light and i've been seeing them all my life so i was wondering if you knew of any kind of anomalous light phenomena through shamanic um experiences or that you've read about so i was thinking about this and I have read references that sort of say in passing that there was some sort of light phenomenon that was observed by the person who was having the shamanic um, initiation uh, call or something like that. But I haven't actually seen any that go into detail about it. But um, I'm just trying to think, like, where do I even start? Because there's so much that could be said about this. Clearly, from everything from folklore to artistic representation, light is heavily involved in this. 
and it's everything from like depicting holy people with halos to lights in the sky, lights in the woods. Um, I do have one of my spirit, my main spirit teacher sometimes will appear as just light and then will take on a, you know, more human like form. Um, although that wasn't part of my like original experiences. Um, but something that I thought might be kind of interesting as more like background context to this is when I was doing my dissertation research on mirrors, um, obviously mirrors are shiny. That's like part of their technological nature. And um, archaeologically, a lot of the context that we find mirrors in are burials. Now, partly that's just survivorship bias because burials tend to be underground. Uh, sometimes they're in a some sort of building that's made of stone or something like that. And that, to some extent, will protect them. Um, but there's also obviously clearly something going on where mirrors are deliberately placed in burials. And it's very common for archaeologists to just be like, well, yeah, you know, um, it was like a precious object because it's, it's a big chunk of metal. And, um, you know, so it was like part of their fancy possessions. And so, of course, they were buried with it. Or sometimes you'll get, well, of course, it's a woman's burial and, you know, women in mirrors. Right. But when you look at, for example, Japan, you have these burials that have dozens of mirrors in them. And they will be, in many cases, propped up vertically along the sides of the coffin so that the reflective side is facing in towards the deceased person. Those mirrors are doing something. That's not just, hey, look at me, look how rich I am when I have all this metal. There, there's clearly a purpose that those mirrors are supposed to be fulfilling. So as I was researching this, what's what's the deal with mirrors and the shininess and all that? Well, there's an archaeologist named uh, Nicholas Saunders, and he wrote a whole series of articles. He's gotten off on other topics now, but he wrote a whole series of articles looking at different shiny materials in the Americas and comparing the archaeological finds and stuff with folklore and anthropological descriptions of cultures in the Amazon and Mesoamerica and so on. And what he talks a lot about is that there was all over both North and South America, there is this common theme of shininess, which is to say reflecting light, being associated with spiritual power and, and spiritual quality. And this was part of why when the Spanish arrived in the Americas, and of course they were all like obsessed with gold and stuff, and they were, you know, in some of their writings, they talk about how shocked they are that they can get gold from these people in exchange for just some glass beads or something, you know, broken bits of mirror or things like that from Europe. Well, what Saunders is saying is, yeah, but those things had equal value from the perspective of the people in the Americas because they're all shiny. And so, this, this shininess factor connected not only human-made technologies like mirrors and things made out of metals, uh, but also things like feathers, shells, pearls and stones, water. Um, and it forms 
this really complicated web of symbolism and analogy. Um, and, you know, this, this thing like uh, obsidian is connected to jaguar eyes because, you know, they both have this shiny property. And I think that that reaction is not just limited to the cultures in the Americas. There's something about shininess. Humans are like crows that way, right? There's something about that sparkle. And that can actually be used in its own right for inducing altered states of consciousness that then allow for uh, easier communication with spirits. There was a really interesting article uh, that I read in grad school. It, it, the author's names are uh, Lindstrom and Christofferson, 2001, I think. Um, and they were looking at what's called animal style art during the migration period in Scandinavia. So the migration period is so-called because it's when Germanic speaking peoples started uh, moving around Anglo-Saxons to England, well, the Angles and Saxons to England to bring back, and um, people into what's now modern day Germany and so on. And um, so this is like um, after the, the Roman Empire has basically fallen and now there's this opportunity for people to like reshuffle basically. And so if you think about what Viking art looks like, you know, with the intertwined dragon type serpent looking piece, and also, you know, we see that like uh, in, in Ireland, for example, um, and there are, it's actually getting there from Scandinavians. So in this article, they make the argument that this style of art is actually a kind of a hypertext that either is itself a tool for accessing altered states of consciousness, or it sort of encodes experiences that happen in altered states of consciousness. And they say that, uh, you know, when we see these things now, we see them in brightly lit museums or photographs in books and so on, but how you would be seeing them in ancient times, uh, well, during daytime it would be in sunlight, but at night it would be by firelight, and that moving light that comes from firelight uh, creates a sense of movement in the art itself. and if you kind of stare at it, you can actually go into kind of a light that's not safe. And one of the things that they say in the article that I found really interesting is they said that, you know, we often talk about people who are more easily slip into those kind of states as though they're more gullible or more susceptible. But they said that actually it correlates um, in psychological studies with people who have actually really resilient um, mental stability. And so a lot of, during that particular period um, in Scandinavia and also in Britain, a lot of the places where, like the main context where you would see this art is on these big brooches that were found in burials with mature women. So there's something about these women that, you know, yes, in, in a sense they're wealthy because they have a chunk of expensive material there, but Perhaps these are also people who, who know how to read this text, so to speak. They know they can either use it to enter that trance state, perhaps, or they can perhaps use it as almost like a mnemonic to 
um, recall the lore that was obtained originally in that trance state. And so I, I mention all this because all this has to do with light. It all has to do with um, our relationship to light and, 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 and surface. And, and this is something that humans have been deliberately playing with forever. We love shiny stuff and we love to make it more shiny, you know. Um, my, uh, my grad school advisor wrote this book called How Ancient Europeans Saw the World. And he has a section where he talks about this lighting issue. And he, one of the things he mentions is that um, the shapes of ceramic vessels, things, things that are flat or square tend to have a very, the side that catches the light is just kind of a flat, lighted area. The sides that aren't catching the light are just sort of flat, shadowed areas. But when you have curved surfaces, they the light plays over them. And he talks about how the shape of Iron Age pottery in Europe is very curvilinear. It's really, um, you know, narrow base, and then it swells way out, and it gets narrow again, and it comes out again. And he talks about how um, he took, like, a little flashlight and played with changing the direction of light and stuff. Um, and watched how the light played over it, and he said it's really mesmerizing. My own experience, when I was doing my research, I went to the British Museum, and I was looking at the um, Celtic mirrors from Britain there. And this will forever be one of the greatest experiences of my life, because they have a room that is hidden behind a door that looks like a bookcase, and you get to go in the back room and like look at these artifacts, and they're amazing. One of the mirrors from a site called Holcomb, the, where the handle attaches to the mirror plate, there's this basically little face. And there's been a little bit of debate about, is this a cat face? Is this a, an owl face, maybe? Perhaps it's meant to kind of change between the two. But the standard way to take photographs for archaeological publications is to have the light coming from above and I think it's to the left of the artifact. Um, and when I actually was able to handle this mirror and change the direction of the light, that face completely changes. It, it's, I don't think there's any doubt that it is intended to change. But changingness is part of the point of it. Though I, I do think it is a face of a Eurasian eagle owl, but that's just my personal opinion. Um, so they're, they're, and you think of, you know, Celtic art too, and it's got these very curvilinear kinds of designs. They, all of this has like light and movement built into it. It's a technology for engaging with that. And I, so I think that they're, even in, in Europe and in Asia, not just in the Americas, and probably Africa too, I just don't know as much about it. There's, this, um, and Oceania and Australia, um, there is this connection of light with this, these numinous beings. Um, I have to say that we, in living here in Athens County, uh, are blessed with an abundance of weird light phenomena. <laughs> yes, we are. <laughs> um, I, I never had any of the sort that I could see with the naked eye until living here. And then I started to see the um, fireflies that are in colors that fireflies don't come in. Mm -hmm. um, 
and they don't necessarily blink on and off like fireflies. Yeah. They're really pretty. Probably should mm-hmm. They are. No. Guessing. No. But they're very pretty. Yeah. Yeah, the Native Americans always said, no, 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 don't follow those. Uh, it's interesting when you were talking about the use of light and art, animal-based art. One of the things I read about fairly recently was in the Neolithic caves in France that have the beautiful paintings, the cave paintings. Um a lot of them are very far underground and and in these places that are fairly inaccessible. And in order to paint them, of course, there had to be torches so that you could see to paint them. There was no way natural light was, you know, getting back there. And so some people have, have studied what it looks like when you bring torches in and the play of light and the shape of the wall, because of course it's not perfectly flat and the way that they shaded the animals makes it look like they're moving. And so that it's almost like that's our first movie. You know, (laughs) that's the first time that a movie was made. Uh, But it's also, of course, I start thinking, I'm like, um, fire in underground, um, the oxygen and breathing. And all I could think of was, you know, I wonder if anyone went into an altered state of consciousness from slight hypoxia. Uh, <laughs> because, and then, you know, by the end of the paper, they got to that. I'm like, okay, so I wasn't, I wasn't the super smart one who figured it out. Uh, but it's one of those things that could be some sort of initiatory experience there. Um, underground water will f- flash up with light, and that had to have been a, an amazing thing. Um, and also uh, bioluminescent yes. fungus in, in cave systems. And that, again had to have been something that was that was amazing and bits of pyrite in the sandstone or in limestone sending the sparkle had to have been an interesting thing and and then you know the little firefly guys that aren't really fireflies i mean who's the first one who followed them and and everybody else was like well we're not going to do that again (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> so that it becomes this tradition. Well, uh, Jim followed him, and uh, look what happened to him. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Never saw him again, and so now we're not going to do that. And, of course, the, the, the experience of entering into a cave is also part of these shamanic lower world, underworld journeys that people have. Um, and there's also acoustics that are weird in underground. Mm-hmm. Uh, one of the archaeological digs that I went on as an undergraduate is um, at the site of Chavin in Peru. And so this is a it's a pre-Inca site. Um, and it's in the Andes. And it's very interesting because there's, in their artistic style, there's a mix of elements that are from the Amazon, like jaguars and things like that. And then from um, the other side of the Andes, uh, which is, you know, mostly desert. And coast, right? 
and yeah. they were a big you know hub for trade and it seems like people would come from all over the place to this site which is i mean it's 12,000 feet up in the mountains it's up there it's not easy to access even when i went there um and they created these they're they're not technically underground because what they did was they built mounds up and then they built passageways into the mounds i believe there are some passageways that actually do go underground but mostly they're within the and um man the the it really plays tricks with your head the the way that sounds bounce around in there and they were very sophisticated with putting in uh little vents for air and light to get in and and so there's one uh, chamber there's a passageway that goes to a chamber and it has this thing in it called the lanzon which is basically like a slab of rock that is kind of like a narrow triangle in shape but it's carved all over with this being that's got fangs and like serpent hair and uh, all, a lot of their imagery involves wow. you know like intermediate hybrid human snake human jaguar human mountain lion kind of uh, imagery and um, man if you saw that thing by torchlight that would scare the bejeebers out of you or if not yeah you, depending on how you were prepared it would be like awe-inspiring because even mm -hmm. seeing it with a little bit of electric light um was very awe-inspiring um and i know that the professor that i was working with then as an undergrad he um has has written a lot about sort of the acoustical features of these passages and how that could potentially be in um, basically giving people these initiatory experiences. And we do have imagery at that site where people are, or actually probably not people, maybe spirits or gods or something are carrying St. Pedro cactuses. So that's hallucinogenic. And so there's, there's some right. other images that seem to have mucus running out of their nose, which is, um, there are Amazonian entheogens that you take as a snuff and they cause you to just like produce tons of boogers basically. It's pretty gross looking, but um, <laughs> so it seems like they might've been using entheogens that were both, you know, from the, from the Amazon, from the rainforest, as well as um, from the desert side. And so, you know, that again, if you're in a dark passageway and there's, or, or there's flickering light and there's, crazy sounds and water sounds and everything. That's pretty trippy. Yeah. That's yeah. Gonna definitely a Yeah, definitely a change of consciousness. Yeah. Um well Newgrange is like that. The 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 passage in Newgrange, that chamber has weird acoustics that will bounce your voice around. So if you chant in there it it starts to sound like you have extra voices with you. Um, and of course it has the, the opening that light comes in and, and, you know, illuminates the whole place once a year. So, yeah. I've never that's, been that's inside amazing. New Grange, but that's, that's a bucket list thing for sure. Yeah. Yeah. For, for reals. Um, and then there's, uh, Oh, see, lost the thought. It went away. 
went flying away. Oh, yeah. Okay. So in theogens, um, one of the things that I've always experienced with theogens is light, light effects. Um, and not always everybody else does, um, but it's one of the things that I do notice and I'll see the flashes of light you know the very first time i was like eh, it's a cor corneal like abrasion oh, it's dislocated i don't know and then i was like girl no you're fine <laughs> uh you can't always get rid of that 20th century logic that's you know stuck in there and so you start getting freaked out but yeah i always saw light I've heard that a lot um, from people talking about light and color. Um, and of course, color is a property of light, really. So, yeah. Um, oh, yeah. I actually, I, I, I have had experiences with a couple of entheogens, but they were not, um, they're not the standard ones um, that you think of, right? Um, and only one of them was intentional. <laughs> so, um, oops. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, it's not that I, it's not so much that I chose not to, it just, I have not had an opportunity to, I don't view those things as purely recreational. Um, neither and, do I. Yeah. Yeah. And so, but the context in which I would have had the opportunity would have been one where it was not, uh, there would be no opportunity to to have the. I mean, in theogen, right? It's supposed. It literally means like it. It brings the divine, right? And and that would not have right. happened. So, um, except yeah. except with the one that I did do intentionally, um, but that wasn't that one wasn't a didn't produce visual effects. Uh, so. Yeah. Yeah, but I have heard, yeah. you know, from people that they, you know, light is part of the, especially with mushrooms, I've heard that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, flashes of light happen with, with those. Although most of the time, most of what I've ever seen has been without that. So, yeah. Um, you know. Yeah, you don't. That's just kind of how it goes. You don't need entheogens to see this stuff. They They kind of make it easier easier but, yeah they're they're there regardless so mm-hmm that's definitely true um do you have anything else you want to dig into in in this regard so i mean as you can tell and obviously i can go on pretty much endlessly about anthropological stuff and shamanic stuff um i can't think of a specific Thing that we have like left unaddressed. Um, yeah, that's cool. Well, you can always come back. I will definitely have you back. There's a lot of stuff that we got into that I'm like, oh, we could go for another, you know, hour or two on that one. So yeah, I, I took notes. Fantastic. So <laughs> I would love to have you back. Well, I would love to be back. I love these conversations. Um, I'm actually, I, I like to, I write a lot and I'm not saying I write mm -hmm. well. In fact, I, I don't, I, I write, well, all of my practice, all of my writing 
has been academic, and so I can write that style. Um, but it's not exactly the most readable. Um, and I have not yet found a good voice that's sort of like uh, not super dry and boring, but yet, ha you know, scholarly. Um, some people are so good at that, and I mm -hmm. just, man, I really struggle with that. But um, I'm planning on, I'm pro it'll probably be a substack, not paywalled, but um, just to write about some of this stuff. Um, so if mm -hmm. anybody's interested in that, I don't have it up yet. I'm also working on my website, but I am crippled by perfectionism, and so it's not ready yet. Um, but I, I can give people my email address. Okay, if, if anybody's just interested in this, or if they want to, yeah, go ahead. Be advised when that stuff happens. Um, so, um, my email is forestweirdwork at google or gmail.com. Sorry, so it's f o r e s t w y r d w o r k, forestweirdwork. Um, and just shoot me an email. I'm happy, clearly I'm happy to talk about this stuff okay. and I'll let anybody know if I actually generate any public writing on this. Um, I'm also going to be teaching a workshop on how to do shamanic journeying. Uh, it should be November 4th and 5th. And that will be okay. somewhere in the Athens area, but there's a possibility that it could be hybrid as well if people zoom in. Um, but we it's limited to eight students, okay. so it's kind of like, let me know if you're interested because they can't fill up that. All right. Well, thank you. Oh, you're so welcome. Thank you for having me back. Well, that's all for this week's episode of the Six Degrees of John Keel podcast. If you have any questions or thoughts about the podcast or would like to come and talk about your experiences of the paranormal, you can contact us at 6djk67 at gmail.com. We promise to even answer you, and we are always happy to hear from you. Thank you.